guys, welcome back to Solid Ground, Fall 2020. We're so pumped that you guys are here tuning in on Zoom. We're still going to be fellowshipping. And um, this semester we have an awesome, awesome subject. It's going to cover uh, semester-wide. Um, and uh, just want to remind you about Solid Ground. This is our club-wide meeting, so glad you're here. Make this a priority in your schedule. Solid Ground is all about hard-hitting, life-changing, spirit-filled truth. So we want to gather around God's Word and remind ourselves, who am I and what story am I a part of? We want to live into uh, the story that God's written us into. And this semester, more than ever before, we're going to see that that story is a good story and it's a story full of good news. So the topic all semester long is the gospel of God. That's what we're going to be looking at. And right off the bat, I know a number of you guys are um, probably pumped because you're like, hey, this is a topic I, I, I kind of actually I'm coming into knowing a little bit about. And I know you recognize the importance of the gospel, the centrality of the gospel. But one of the big um, goals this semester is to see how expansive and extensive the gospel is. How the gospel is not just one truth among many truths, but the gospel is the totality of the divine truths. The gospel is not the ABCs of the faith. The gospel is the alphabet of the faith. So um, Gospel of God, check the outline in the, um, in the link that you got. Make sure you're looking at these verses because we want to see from God's word, what is the good news that God wants proclaimed to all of humanity across all of time and throughout all of space? God has one singular message for all of humanity. That message is good news. Okay, so let's break down the title just real quick. <clears throat> um, the Gospel of God. Remember, gospel means good news. And so now more than ever, I think we would all recognize we're in a pandemic, the economy's tanking, politics are a sham, and, um, you know, we all are in our own personal struggles. We have our own personal crosses. So now more than ever, we need to know, believe in, and tell out the good news to the aching world around us. We want to be a people of good news in a world of bad news and fake news. So... Um, I'm super pumped for this topic, the good news. Uh, we're going to see what God has uh, to say, say about this. Now, I, I know a lot of you guys have seen the, uh, the hit show, Some Good News. It started on um, just, you know, online YouTube. And John Krasinski recently sold it because it got so popular. And to me, as I was, I was thinking about this, I was just reminded how, how desperate and um, needy people are to hear some good news. I mean, think about the The name of the show was some good news. And he says uh, it's a news show dedicated entirely to good news. I mean, think about it. Mainly when we watch the news, it's bad news. And so John Krasinski had this thought, why don't I make a show called Some Good News? And people will send me all the good news that they've heard about. It maybe is something, you know, simple, uh, something um, cool, something profound, but it's good news. Think about that. A show all about good news. Well, we've got a book dedicated entirely to good news. John Krasinski's got a little show uh, that's dedicated to good news. We've got a big book that's dedicated exclusively to good news. And so we want to see what that good news is. That's the Bible. Now, a little bit of, on the background of this word gospel, um, you may not know that the gospel has a very interesting background to it, a historical context. Uh, the Christians did not make that word up. In fact, it's got both a Jewish background and a Roman background. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Before we get into the, uh, the actual points I've got here for you. <clears throat> On the Jewish side, the prophets, especially in the book of Isaiah, if you read Isaiah, you'll notice again and again 
really picking up with Isaiah chapter 40, um, verses 9 through 11, but then in chapter 52, chapter 61, Isaiah is looking forward to this future um, announcement of good news and glad tidings. So let me read you this verse. This is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 11. It says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, who brings glad tidings. Lift up your voice with power, O Jerusalem, who brings glad tidings. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord Jehovah will come as a mighty one. His arm will rule for him, and his reward is with him. He will feed his flock as a shepherd. In his arms he will gather the lambs. In his bosom he will carry them, and he will lead those who are nursing their young. So there's this kind of like this eschatological, future-oriented expectation of good news is coming. There's going to be eventually one point in time the Old Testament Jewish prophets expected God himself, the Lord Jehovah, will come as a mighty one, and we will lift up our voice without fear, without ashamedness, and we will announce good news. So that's kind of the Jewish background, um, the prophets. But there's also a, a Roman pagan context and background to this word gospel, and that is with the Caesars. So we've got the prophets of Israel and the Caesars of Rome. And the Caesars, um, you know, in ancient Rome, there was something called the imperial cult, where Caesar was worshipped as divine. And um, some of you guys know that I read the Aeneid uh, this summer. I know some of you guys were forced to read the Aeneid in high school or, or maybe in college. I chose to read the Aeneid of my own uh, volition. Anyways, I wanted to do that because, you know, the Aeneid was written in 19 B.C. <clears throat> That's 15 years before Jesus was born. And so what I was interested in reading the Aeneid was finding out what was kind of the, the cultural... A vibe. What, what was floating around in, in the high liter, literature um, milieu that you know was kind of stewing there? And what were the expectations and the, the deepest aspirations of Rome? Because the Aeneid is kind of the backstory, the origin myth of the founding of Rome and what Rome is supposed to be all about. And listen to some of these quotes I pulled out. I thought it was so interesting. From the Aeneid, you know, it mentioned Caesar Augustus. Of course, Caesar was alive at that time. Augustus was alive. And it says, Augustus Caesar, a God's son and bringer of a new, a new age of gold. So he's mentioned as a God's son and a bringer of a new age of gold. And then at another point in time, Jupiter, who's Zeus, <clears throat> we know him more by Zeus, he says this, For the Romans, I will not limit time or space. Their rule will have no end. With worldwide empire, glory, heaven high, then wars will end and cruel history will grow gentle. So, you know, you, you kind of pick up this, this, um, this vibe, this sentiment, this, um, this, this myth of what Rome is supposed to do, and Rome is supposed to end wars, bring in a new age of gold, and it's all going to happen through a son of the gods um, who was supposed to be Augustus. And then in 9 B.C., that's five years before Jesus was born. Jesus was born, born in 4 B.C., most people think, so it's not zero, talk about that later. Um, but there was an inscription, uh, the Prean calendar inscription, it says this, the birthday of the god Augustus was for the world the beginning of the good tidings that came by reason of him. And that word good tidings is evangelion, gospel in Greek. So you get a sense that in the Jewish expectation, the prophets were looking forward to this future uh, event of good news, the Messiah, Jesus, or uh, I don't know who's Jesus, but the Lord Jehovah, 
And then the Roman Caesars were proclaiming themselves to be the saviors of the world, the sons of the gods who have come to bring in worldwide peace. Of course, they had the Pax Romana at that time. Five years after that inscription in 4 BC, there was a group of shepherds in the fields at night, poor shepherds out there tending their flocks. All of a sudden, an angel broke through visible time and space, entered into the realm of human happenings, and made an announcement. He said this, Behold, I announce to you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Because today, a Savior has been born to you in David's city, who is Christ the Lord. So in this, in this midst of Jewish expectation and Roman self-pronouncement, you know, a group of small shepherds out there in the middle of nowhere got the announcement that today that long-awaited and expected Savior of the world is not sitting on the throne in Rome. He's here in a manger, and his name is Jesus. So we're going to see all, uh, all semester long how Jesus is the gospel, and he fulfills all the Old Testament expectations, and he confronts all the pompous claims of this world. And he is the only one who brings true good news. Of course, um, Today in America, we have our own version of the gospel, the American dream, the American gospel. And that basically comes down to authenticity and, and achievement. And we're told again and again through music and media that if we're just true to ourselves, if we look down into our hearts and our deepest desires and we actualize that, live that out, we'll be celebrated, um, we'll be happy, and all our dreams will come true. Of course, we know that that never delivers ultimately on its promises. And so we still feel empty, and we're still looking always for more good news. So hope you got a little bit on the gospel here, the background of that word. Now I want to look at one more thing in this title before we jump into the, uh, the outline proper. The gospel of God. <laughs> Say that to yourself. The gospel of God. Who is behind the true good news in this world? None other than G-O-D himself, God. If the gospel doesn't come from above, it's not good news. Because it's just another human thought in the marketplace of ideas. It's just, take it or leave it, here's some good advice. The gospel's not good advice, it's good news from God. Um, and think about God. He's the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God who is love. And he brings the fullness of his being to bear on the nature of his news. God in his power, his glory, his, his everywhereness, his wisdom, in his heart of love, his, himself is endorsing this message, ensuring its plan, its promise, its production, and its proclamation. God himself planned this news. The good news was not an afterthought once human history went south. The gospel was not a rescue mission, uh, a contingency plan. The gospel was planned from before time began, before human sin came in and messed things up. God had a message he wanted to tell humanity. He created a world and populated it with vessels who could know him, love him, respond to him, and contain him. He planned it. He promised it for thousands of years throughout Old Testament history. Then he himself came in the flesh, fulfilled the Old Testament expectations, confronted the false gospels of this world, and he produced it, he performed it, and now he's sending us out to proclaim it. 
The gospel of God. I love this. This good news comes from God himself. So when a person of this status, this rank, and this dignity has something to say, we better be sure we're listening up because we know it's going to be backed by everything he is, all that he is. I love this. Aren't you loving this? I love this. The gospel of God. He's the source and the substance of this good news. The source, he's the origin, he's the substance. He's the very content that makes this news so substantial and so good. Okay, I love this. So let's go ahead and jump into um, our outline proper here. I think you got a, a good feel for the gospel of God. What's behind that short, uh, simple title um, is God and all that he wants to do and communicate to man. Okay, so three points for tonight, real simple, but we're going to try and uh, plumb the depths of these three points and see how rich and full they are. Number one, uh, know it. Number two, believe it. Number three, tell it out. Know it, believe it, and tell it out. And with those three points, just to kind of round it out, I put in your outline here, know what? Know what about the gospel? Know it in two things, its center and its fullness. Believe what? Believe it in its truth and power. And tell it out in its goodness and glory. So hopefully these three points are are simple enough for you to latch on to and remember all semester long. We want to know it in its center and fullness. We want to believe it in its truth and power, what it can do for us, its ability, and we want to tell it out in its goodness and glory. Okay, so let's dive in here. Ephesians 1.13 is our first verse under know it, and this verse says, having heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Of course, I've uh, just bracketed off that part of the verse. What's interesting about this verse is that these two phrases, the word of the truth and the gospel of your salvation, are in apposition. Now, what apposition means is these are equivalent statements. It's saying the same thing two different ways. So, for instance, if I said, hey, um, you know, I want you guys to come over to my house, uh, and you're like, well, okay, text me the address. I'm like, well, you know, all you got to do is uh, drive down the street, turn right, and uh, you'll see my house You'll see my house right there on the corner, the mansion on the corner. LOL, right? <laughs> my house, the mansion on the corner. I don't live in a mansion on the corner, but you would – Link those two phrases, you know, go down the street, turn right, you'll see my house, uh, the mansion on the corner. Those two statements are in apposition. My house is the mansion on the corner. So when we look at this verse, Ephesians 1.13, what is the gospel? The gospel is the word of the truth. And so this is, this is really awesome and, and starts um, opening up the extensiveness of the gospel. Like I said, the gospel is not one truth among many. It's not the introduction to the book. You know, it's not the prelude to the symphony. It is the totality of divine truths. All truths in the Bible make up the gospel. This is awesome. This includes the Old Testament. All the promises, like, you know, we talked about, Jesus fulfills. All the prophecies, Jesus fulfills. All the types in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills. We already started looking at this on Sunday. He's the true Isaac. He's the true and better Solomon. He's the real Jonah. He's that Passover lamb. He's the manna who came down. He's that rock in the wilderness where there was nothing, no supply, that was struck open by the rod of God's law and gushed out living water for our satisfaction. So when we understand that the whole Bible is gospel, that the gospel is the totality of the divine truths, this will enrich and, and I would say excite our reading of the Bible because now we are on the lookout in the Old Testament Where do I see the good news? 
I see it in Isaac. He's the one who was faithful to death and rose up from the dead and took a spouse among the Gentiles. Solomon, Jesus is speaking the word of wisdom to build his church. Jonah, Jesus descends into the heart of the sea, the depths of the abyss, and comes out again on the third day with a message of peace, again for Gentiles. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slaughtered so that we wouldn't have to bear God's wrath. And if we put his blood on our doorpost, the doorpost of our lives, then the death angel passes over us. He's the manna. He is that living, edible substance that's mysterious. Manna means what is it who came down to where we were to be our food. He's the rock, like I said, that became our drink. The gospel is the totality of the divine truth. So that's what we're looking at in this first verse. The word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Interestingly enough, I pulled up this one verse. Let me read this to you. This is Galatians 3.8. This one explicitly says that the gospel was pronounced in the Old Testament. It says, Galatians 3.8, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles out of faith announced the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So Galatians 3.8 explicitly says that the gospel was there back in Genesis 12. That's what that uh, verse refers to, that the gospel was there before the law was there, which again shows us, um, you know, even 12 chapters in the Bible, God is already, you know, jumping at the gun to tell us good news. And again, that uh, we can superimpose that uh, concept on our Old Testament reading and find good news uh, all throughout. The gospel is not just four books of the Bible. It's all 66 books. It's not the appetizer. It's the whole meal. It's not the front door. It's that whole mansion on the corner. <laughs> so I love this. Now we need to know it. Look at this next verse. 1 Timothy 1.4. God desires all men to be saved. Now that is the gospel, salvation, but also to come to the full knowledge of the truth. So again, that's what we want to look at mainly this semester. We want to come to a fuller knowledge and apprehension of the truth of the gospel for our experience of salvation. Okay, so we need to know it. We need to know it in its fullness. We need to know it in its center. Imagine a freshman coming to UT, you know, in a pandemic. He may never leave campus, right, all semester, all year long. He's been in Austin, an awesome city. You know, a lot of people travel here uh, from all over the world to um, hear the music, to eat the food, to do the outdoor stuff, see our graffiti, you know. We've got a place called the uh, Cathedral of Junk. If you're a freshman, you might want to check that out. Um, it's actually kind of cool. Um, but imagine that freshman. He, he goes home after a year of only being on campus, never leaving campus, and his parents ask him, hey, uh, how's Austin? I mean, how much of Austin does he know? He doesn't know about the Cathedral of Junk. He's never been to 360 Bridge. He's never been to Mozart. He's never been on the east side. He's never been to, um, you know, Gordo's. He's never been to... Uh, I mean, you name it. The guy, he hasn't been to SoCo. He barely knows Austin. We don't want to be that freshman stuck in one part of the Bible and, you know, only knowing that Jesus died for my sins and I'm good. You know, I'm good eternally. There's a lot more to know. We want to come into the full knowledge of the truth. Okay? So look at these next two verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Um, this is the center of the gospel. And Romans 1, uh, 1 and verse 15 uh, kind of indicates the fullness of the gospel. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on these verses, but I'm just pointing them out. We'll have a lot of messages that dive deeper into the center and on the fullness. But the center, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, Paul says, I make known to you the gospel which I announced to you, 
Three points. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. So Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the center of the gospel. That's downtown. That's that dense, you know, that's that dense central hub where everything's happening. All business, commerce, commerce, entertainment, art, you know. That's the central core of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. But again, that's not it. And interestingly enough, in this verse in Romans, Paul is writing to Christians. If you look at verse 7, he says, um, I'm writing to you, uh, the saints of God. Um, and he says this, I've been separated under the gospel of God, so for my part, I'm ready to announce the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now remember, he's writing to a Christian church. Imagine if a top apostle wrote to your church and said, hey, I'm coming, I'm going to preach the gospel to you. You may think, we all, uh, we all checked that box already. You know, we're, we're, we're Christians, we're, we're saved. We, we prayed the prayer, you know, we got, we got our ticket uh, to heaven. We got our fire insurance. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you don't get it. You have barely one, you know, overgrown, big toenail barely sticking across the gospel line. You got one toenail barely over the line, and I'm telling you, there's a mansion to explore. And so when we read the book of Romans in this context, everything in the book of Romans is the gospel. Not just our justification or forgiveness, but our sanctification. God has more good news. Not just that you won't be held accountable for your sins, but God will radically transform you at your core. Also part of the gospel in Romans is you'll be built up with other believers. That's part of the gospel. We are not destined to be confined in our own isolation and you know, desired autonomy, you know, which is, which is uh, a mask and a mirage and a foolish, a foolish uh, wish that we want to be our own person. There's more joy and more good news when we're connected in a vibrant community. Of course, that's what we have to offer in Seesaw. But that's part of the good news, that God's going to do this. So kind of rounding out this first point, I hope you're starting to get a sense of the extensiveness of the gospel, just how uh, full the gospel is. It has a core, but it's got a vast, sprawling, expansive outer city limits, and we want to, we want to tour the whole town. We want to get in our cars and drive and uh, look around like tourists for the first time entering a famous city and being awed and taking a picture of even, you know, stop signs and street signs and Bridges, you know, things that, you know, a, a long-time resident would kind of look past. We want to be uh, freshly inspired and impressed with what God has for us. You know, um, when we're talking about being overwhelmed with the, the um, glorious vastness of the gospel, I couldn't help but thinking of um, looking at the night sky in the middle of nowhere. You know, have you ever done that? Have you ever gone out in the middle of nowhere, outside city limits? I'm talking way out. Um, you know, there was not even like light kind of streaming on the horizon in the distance. My brother got married in New Zealand, which, you know, if you look at a map, it's way down there. You know, they call Australia down under, New Zealand under, down under. I mean, it's like sloping down towards Antarctica. And he got married in Auckland, so we went down there, me and my wife and family. <clears throat> and after the wedding, we had some more time, so we drove down to the South Island. And the South Island is, is further south, and it has more sheep than people on the island, okay? So, not much going on on the South Island in New Zealand. And we, we drove all the way down to Christchurch, which is a city in New Zealand, Christchurch. Um, but it's, it's way down south. And on our drive down there, we hopped in this guy's van we knew, and he just kind of took us on this 
uh, rolling kind of tour of the South Island. And, and one night we spent the night on this guy's farm. I mean, we milked the cows. I mean, it was a farm that was out there in the middle of nowhere on the South Island in New Zealand. And the first night we were there, we, we, me and my wife, we went out uh, at night, in the middle of the night, and we looked up at the stars because we thought, man, we are in the middle of nowhere at the bottom of the world about to slip off this globe. Let's go look at the stars, you know. And we went out there, and, you know, you may not know this or you may have forgotten this, but the Southern Hemisphere is a whole other set of constellations you've never seen if you've never been down there. There's no Big Dipper, you know. There's no Summer Triangle or whatever. There's no Cygnus Swans, no Orion's Belt. Um, so we went out there, and, you know, first thing is there's just billions of stars that are visible. It's just gleaming and glittering. And, um, you know, I'm bewildered because I'm trying to take it all in, and I don't recognize any of it. It was all new. First time I'd ever seen that patch of sky. And it was so overwhelming. I'm trying to take it in, and I'm, I'm kind of like looking. There's this one, there's this only one solitary, lone, kind of light gray cloud that's just, um, you know, stretching kind of out, elongated over, over the, um, the night sky. And I'm trying to look through it. I'm trying to like, man, you know. And all of a sudden I notice, wait a minute. The, the stars are in front of the cloud. And I was thinking, wait a minute, wait. And, you know, it took about three seconds for my brain to catch up to reality. And I wasn't looking through a cloud. I was looking at stars in front of the Milky Way like I'd never seen it before. It was so bright, so there, you know, because I was, I was so far out there. And I, it was so amazing. It was so amazing. I wish we could go to New Zealand right now and do it tonight. But, you know, thinking about this, that looking at that night sky in New Zealand, you know, unfortunately our media and our music and our movies are like cultural light pollution that blocks out the brightness and the beauty of the gospel night sky. And we've been living beneath the most dazzling thing to me that God has ever created, the, the night sky with its constellations and its beauty and its brightness and its, you know, how it calls to us. And we're living beneath it and we can hardly even see a single star at night because we're in the big city of this world and there's so much light pollution in our culture that We've never seen the gospel night sky for what it is. We think, oh, yeah, there's a few stars up there. It's not that cool. I walk under it every night without ever looking up. So this semester, guys, we want to see the gospel night sky, like that New Zealand night sky that I saw. If we see it, we'll be dazzled by it. If we see it, we'll hardly be able to look away from it. Doesn't that sound awesome? One of the main reasons we live a sad and impoverished and a dull Christian life is because we don't know what the gospel entails. We've never seen that New Zealand night sky. My goal tonight is just to, just to take us down there and say, look up and look around and look what is in the gospel. We want to know it in its center and fullness. Okay, number two, we want to believe it in its truth and power. What good is it if you don't believe it, even if you knew all about it? So look at these first two verses, Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Notice that phrase and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is drawn near. Repent and believe in the gospel. The first words out of Jesus' mouth, once he begins his thing, once he begins his deal, what he came to this earth for was not carpentry. It was for the gospel. Once he gets that, you know, once he shifts his life into gear, the first thing he says is repent and believe. Now, for us, some of us, that, that word's kind of a trigger word, repent. We're like, whoa, 
Like, Burp. sounds a little harsh and in your face, right? I mean, like, who's this dude? Like, I just had you build me at like a, a kitchen table, you know? And like, that was last week. And now you're saying repent? And, um, you know, so we're kind of like, ah, that's a little kind of in my face. I don't know if I like that. Repent and believe? It seems a little like impressed upon me and, and forced. But let's stop and think what that's really saying for a second. Repent just means change how you think about life. And what Jesus here is saying is, stop trying to be something to prove your worth to others in this world. Get out of that rat race of trying to prove who you are and get uh, accolades and glory and kind of puff up yourself because it's a vain endeavor. Doesn't doesn't satisfy. In fact, it leads you into dissolution and sin and regret, clamoring over one another to try and prove who you are. You compromise on your values. You stab your friends in the back. You betray your loved ones, all to advance you. We know heartbreaks, betrayals, divorces, you name it, are all done under this, I'm doing it my way. I'm advancing my cause. So Jesus says, stop thinking like that. You've got to radically think about life different because there's something better to believe in than yourself. And it's not prove yourself by achieving something. It is let me prove how worthy you are to me. And you'll know that once you receive something, once you believe something that I'm saying is true about you. Isn't that awesome? All other religions tell you, achieve something. Only the gospel, only Christianity tells you, receive something. That's the core of our faith. Not achieve, but receive. That's the thing Jesus is calling for. Believe. Believe. That's faith. Why does our faith please God? It's because faith glorifies God by saying, God, what you have done is enough, and I don't need to add to it. I take it for what it is. You know, my son is, is uh, three and a half, and um, I love it right now. It's so cute. He turns everything into a verb. So instead of, Dada, will you read me a story? It's, Dada, are you the reader? It's real cute. And then, you know, when he goes to bed, uh, he always wants someone sitting there by the, by the bed. He doesn't say, Dada, can you sit by my bed? He goes, Dada, are you the sitter? Of course, sometimes it's, Mom, are you the sitter? And then sometimes he wants us to lay by his bed. You know, so he'll say, are you the layer? So it's, are you, Dad, are you the reader? Are you the sitter? Are you the layer? And I was thinking about this. I was getting into it. You know, he conceptualized, he views me as the doer of, of everything. And, and he views my role as a doer, not just someone who does things here and there, but a doer, a reader, a sitter, a layer, you know. Um, and this really kind of points to God's relationship with us. God wants to be the doer. God's job is to be. Our job is to be Leave. God's job is to be. Our job is to believe. And when we believe, we receive all that God is. And he, he is. He becomes to us everything we need to live the Christian life. Isn't that awesome? God's job is to be. Our job is to believe. And in that act of faith, that believing, the Bible says to believe is to receive. We receive God as the sitter, as the reader, as the layer, as the preacher, as the, as everything you need. Isn't that awesome? So I looked up this um, second century hymn. Listen to the second century hymn. It was written in the third century. And I love it. It says, go out and God will come in. Die thou and let him live. Be not and he will be. Wait and he'll all things give. I love that. Be not 
and he will be. So, you know, we've got the answer to Hamlet, to be or not to be. Hamlet, we say, we will not be this semester. We will not try to be what God calls us to be. We will allow God to be everything he calls us to be in union with him through our receiving faith. Isn't that awesome? He longs to be the doer in everything we do. Now, why is faith so important? Because I'm already getting into that because we receive the divine realities. Look at this next verse. Hebrews 4.2 says, We have had the good news announced to us, even as they also, but the word heard did not profit them, not being mixed together with faith in those who heard. So again, no matter how much you hear this semester, if you don't believe it, then it won't profit you. That's how serious and critical faith is in the Christian life. Now, we know how hard it is to believe sometimes when we look at our life. We look at our current struggles. We look at our spiritual condition. And our problems uh, loom larger than God's where they eclipse the good news. And they darken our faith. Our faith disappears, you know. Um, and so, you know, we've all read the Bible. We've come away from Bible study feeling pumped. And then a couple hours later, we're looking at our life and we're thinking, there was a massive discontinuity from what I was just praising God about and feeling was true. Now I look at my life, I'm stuck in sin, I'm full of doubt, I'm full of discouragement. What do we do in those situations? Well, look at this next verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith, not by appearance. When we look at our life, what do we feel is more true? What God says about us or what we see about us? What we see about ourselves is a temporary struggle, a temporary uh, setback, a temporary problem. And God does not view us as we are in our current uh, spiritual condition. He views us in light of his finished product, light of the gospel. And so when we see this and we believe it, then we can walk by faith. We won't be caught up in the discouragement of our present struggles. Don't believe your present struggles. No matter what you're struggling with right now, look away into Jesus and believe the good news that God has to say about you. Okay, look at our next verse. Um, so we got, we're talking about believing the gospel. Remember, and I'm not just talking about believing that once for all initial Jesus died for you and you're saved gospel. Absolutely, we've got to believe that. But we need to believe the fullness of the gospel. Everything that the Bible has to say about our relationship with God in our spiritual walk with him, we've got to believe that too. Any verse we read, we've got to say, God, I may not be this ex experiencing this right now, but I believe it. And I believe, again, you are the one who has planned this, who has promised this, and have produced this. Even though I'm not yet in that produced experience, my faith latches on to divine realities and brings them into my present experience and makes what you've already accomplished as Fact as unchangeable, unshakable, divine fact. It brings that fact into my experience and makes it true to me. It's already true to God, becomes true to me through my progressive experience of believing any good news I come across in the Bible. Okay? So Hebrews 11.1 explains how this works. Why is faith so important? Hebrews 4 said, if we don't have faith, none of the good news will profit us. Hebrews 11.1 kind of doubles back and says, let's get into this spiritual physics and let's, let, me, let me explain how this actually works. And when you see this verse, it's going to become one of your favorite verses. Hebrews 11.1, now it says uh, in the translation I'm reading, faith is the substantiation of things hoped for. 
And I think this is an important translation, how to render this Greek word, uh, which is actually hypostases, um, a word we use for the triune God. But it's a sub, hypo, under, and it's a standing, a, a stasis. So substantiation, you see that uh, two roots of the word there. Now, the King James translated this as faith is the substance of things hoped for. And a lot of modern versions translate this as faith is the assurance of things hoped for. But I want to tell you why I love this translation. Faith is the substantiation of things hoped for. So in this verse, we've got two things, faith and things. And all the things are all the divine accomplishments and facts that God sees as true. Now, if you think faith is the substance of those things, you're equating these. Faith is the very substance of those things. But we know that's not true, because even though we uh, are Christians and believers, we don't have the thing itself yet. Faith is the assurance of those things just means I believe they're over there. So it's like if, if you're in another room and I call you, I'm assured you're there, even though you, you remain over there and I remain over here. Faith as the substantiation of things hoped for means those divine things are substantiated by me. I substantiate them. They become real in my experience. So think about someone who's blind. Is the world of color not real because they can't see it? No. It's just that they have uh, a damaged sense perceptor, you know, vision uh, is not functioning right in them. And so although something is true all around them, they have zero perception of it, zero substantiation of the reality that they are embedded in. And so faith doesn't make things real. Faith makes, things, faith makes them real to us. Faith brings those realities into our experience. So that's why faith is so important, and that's how faith works. Now the last one on this one, probably running kind of close to the time here, so let me speed up. Romans 1.16 shows us the power. Now we're talking about the truth, believe the truth, and believe the power of the gospel. This verse says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. I love this verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Say that to yourself right now. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why aren't you ashamed of it? Because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Okay, let's, let's think about this. The gospel is the power of God, and what that good news can do is it can save you to the uttermost. Okay? And the only condition God lays down on here is believe. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what kind of history of sin you have in your life, what kind of moods you fall prey to. It's not saying it's going to happen to everyone who's strong, who's capable, who's intelligent, who's good, who's faithful. It's not for the gifted and talented only. It's not for the honor roll. It's not for those in the honors dorms. It's to everyone who believes. So our faith activates the divine power in our salvation. And we experience that as a utter, complete, total, supreme salvation that we can rejoice in. So, you know, it's like you've ever taken a road trip to like um, cross-country road trip. You know, that's one thing you do in college. <laughs> and, you know, it's like what if you have some like old, like, you know, 70s beat up, you know, barely drivable car. And, uh, you know, you got a hand down from your, your, uh, your granddad, you know, and it's like, thanks, it is a car, but does it drive? And, um, you know, your, your friends are going to do a road trip. And they're like, hey, uh, Kyle, can we take your car? I would be a little ashamed, right, to take my car on the road trip. Why would I be ashamed? Because I know it's going to break down halfway there. It's not going to 
get me to the destination. You know, one time I, I took a road trip with some bros a couple years back, and this bro owned a limo. He owned a used cars business, and he owned a limousine. I'm talking a limo. Like, you been in a limo? I have. I, I did it in prom, and not that. It wasn't the same kind of limo. When I, when I got into this uh, road trip, I was like, okay, you know, used cars limo. I mean, it was pretty tight. Four hours into the trip, it broke down, confirming my inherited suspicion about used car dealerships. Um, okay, that's another matter. But think about it. We don't have, we don't, God's gospel is not like that old beater. Not like your granddad's hand-me-down 1970s barely runnable car. The gospel is going to take us all the way. And when we believe it, we sit back and let God do the rest. The power of God is activated in our life to take us from wherever you're starting this semester all the way to God's destination for you. I love it. And so when we believe, not only do we experience the gospel and salvation, we experience undescribable joy. Okay? So this isn't on your, on your sheet, but let me just read a couple of these verses. So awesome. Um, the issue of the gospel is not just knowing it and believing it and experiencing it. It's rejoicing in it. And so l- listen to this verse. In Acts 8, Philip goes down to the city of Samaria and preaches the gospel. And it says this. There was much joy in that city. When the gospel comes to town, joy comes to town. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though not seeing Jesus at present, yet believing, you exult with joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. My prayer for you is that you would experience unspeakable joy this semester. As soon as you try and start talking to somebody about it, you just you can't find the words. It's like describing the New Zealand night sky. You just can't. You have to experience it. I can't tell you about it. I can only grasp at the reality. I can only, only, only clutch at the wind to describe this kind of joy. Have you experienced that kind of joy? Unspeakable joy in Jesus? You know, when David, King David brought back the ark to Jerusalem, it says he danced with all his might before Jehovah. It said he played. He said, I will, be, I will make myself more abased in people's eyes because I don't care. The ark is back. He leaped. He danced. He played. He, you know, and I, I like. I looked this up on YouTube, like this old '70s movie, and I watched it. I was just, I was blown away watching that man, thinking we need to have moments like this about Jesus. The greater embodiment of God's presence is here. It's back. It's on earth. It's in our spirit. If we see the good news for what it is, we will experience unspeakable joy. Remember the prodigal son coming home. What did the father do? You know, at the end of that story, the, the older brother was mad that, God, that the father threw a party for the guy who wasted all of his dad's money on prostitution. Go look back at that story. That's what it says. He says, he devoured your living with prostitutes. Okay. The father wasn't talking about prostitutes when the son came back. He said, you're back. Take a bath because you stink. That's the blood of Jesus. Now come to the table and feast because I know you're hungry. And I am so happy. The verse says, the, verse, the father's talking to the son here. He says, we had to be merry and rejoice. We had to be. Nothing, nothing elicits joy in the heart of God like somebody knowing the gospel, believing the gospel, and coming to feast at the gospel table. That's where we want to be all semester. I hope you experience that this semester. Too often we're too formal. We're too serious. We're like stoics, man. We're like cows who can't appreciate the music of Mozart. 
that God is trying to play for us. So awesome. We've got to dance to the music of God's salvation. Okay, last point. I'm running out of time here. Number three, tell it out. Say that. Tell it out. Tell it out how and in what categories. And it's goodness and then it's glory. Okay? So although we experience the gospel radically personally, you know, it's a very intimate, personal experience, the gospel should not remain a private affair. It is something that happens to you, but not just for you. God brings good news into our life so that we would be a like a music venue to put on the concert of God's good news for others to hear and appreciate. And when we receive the gospel at the core of our being, don't let it remain there. Our faith is not like the shell of a hermit crab. Don't get up in there and retreat and hide, you know? We retreat and we hide from the world thinking, I'm good, I'm, I'm saved. Don't be like that hermit crab, hermit crab crammed up in that shell. Get out and see the world. Don't only care about your own comfort and enclosure. Look at this verse, 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people acquired for a possession. Now get that pen, underline, underline, underline so hard you put a hole in your paper. So that. So that. Why did God choose you? Why did God make you royalty in his eyes? A priesthood. The closest intimate connection with God, with a message, a royal edict to announce to this world, backed by divine authority? Why has God set us apart as a nation unto himself? Why has God acquired us for his own particular possession? It's so that. You feel good? No. So that you're safe? Not the end of the story. So that you may tell out the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God called us, chose us, paid for our sins, so that what he did in our life would be proclaimed. And we want to tell it out. We, want to, we don't want to keep it in the bag because the world needs this news. Just look around. Why is some good news so popular? Because we live in a world with racial injustice, police brutality, Black lives being snuffed out right in front of our eyes. Economic shambles, political lies, election interference. The, the whole world seems like it's melting down. We, we can't even go to college. We've got to be on our computers. We're aching. The world is aching. And we have the message that this world needs to hear. Yes, there's a lot that needs to be done, actually, practically, logistically. But if all we do is kind of put some Band-Aids here and there and solve some problems on the horizontal plane, those problems are going to crop up in 100 more years, 50 years, maybe five years. Every presidential election, it's like trying to undo the, what the guy did before, your predecessor. So we don't want to just have a message that could be undone. Everything God says in the gospel is undoable. Satan can't undo it. So we got good news this world needs to hear. Don't keep it to yourself. God has given this, the joyful privilege of proclaiming this good news. I love this. I love this. Okay, so I better wrap up here. <clears throat> tell it out. That's what this point is all about. So that you may tell out. <clears throat> Let's look at these last two verses real quick. I put these on here because I thought they were an interesting way to round out this uh, first message. It says, While working night and day so as not to be burdensome to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, I put this verse on here because it starts with, While working. 
And what this says to me is the gospel is not the job of professional preachers only. Paul was working the night shift and the day shift. <laughs> and yet he still proclaims. So we could substitute ourselves in this verse and says, while going to school, while working at Starbucks, while living at home, going to class online. The, the gospel is not the private job of, of a certain few professionals. They're really smart, really trained, really gifted. You know, uh, The gospel is for everybody to proclaim. If you believe it, God calls you to proclaim it. So I love this. And it's as simple as, as talking to somebody about your favorite show. How easy is that? You know, because you have joy in that show, you spontaneously want to tell somebody. You don't think of it as some, this, some duty, right? Our job is to proclaim it. God's job is to convict people to believe it. And, you know, when I first learned that, that just freed me up from viewing the gospel as like this hard task. Like, I got to go know all these answers and arguments and comebacks and, you know, defeaters and like how to respond. And No, our job is to proclaim, to be a witness. Now, we'll end with this last verse, Mark 13, 10. Jesus is talking about his second coming. And after talking a lot of, of uh, things to look for, he says this, Yet, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Now, you're thinking about end times, you're thinking about when Jesus is coming. Jesus says, hold up, let's call a 20-second time out. There's something that's got to be first on your mind. Not dates, not prophecies, not signs of the times, not as what do these fires in Australia mean. You got to take care of one thing. Yet the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. <clears throat> there is a chronolo there is a chronological priority to proclaiming the gospel. Then Jesus comes back. And let me end with this. You know, we're all waiting for Jesus to come back to this world with His kingdom to turn it right side up. That's what we're waiting on. Jesus, come back to this world with Your kingdom to turn it right side up. And Jesus is waiting for us to go out into this world with the gospel to turn it inside out. He's saying, I'm going to come back once you go out into this world and proclaim the gospel to all the nations. Turn this world right side up, right, uh, turn this world inside out, and I'm going to come back and turn it right side up. So I hope you guys are pumped for this semester. I know this is probably a lot, but just three simple points. Grab onto something that touched you. Know it in its center and fullness. Believe it in its truth and power and tell it out in its goodness and glory. Hope you guys come back next week and stick around all semester long because God has much more good news for us. Amen.